Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, we thank you too for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is living and powerful, and Lord, that it changes us. It changes our thinking. And Lord, how we need our thinking to be changed. Father, this world would feed us with so many things that are unhealthy and unhelpful. But Lord, your word, Lord, it's truth. And so, Father, as we study now, we just pray your blessing upon this time. Give us ears that will hear. Lord, hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, that that which we learn may cause us to grow in knowledge and grace. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to study your word together. Lord, we just commit you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're rather ambitiously this morning. We're going to uh, go through the entire book of Numbers. I reckon it's going to take us about six hours. So, uh, no, no, just, just kidding. The Hebrew title for the book of Numbers is Midbar, or something along those lines. It means in the wilderness. And of course, that's really what the book is focusing on. Um, the um, Greek title is Arithmoi, or as we would translate it, Numbers is where we get arithmetic from. Uh, the Latin title being Numeri. So uh, that's where our title for the book comes from. Because it deals with the, the numbering of the children of Israel. The book is going to cover 38 years of Israel's history. From the point that the law had been given at Sinai, they left Egypt, they spent two years camped at Sinai. And then from that point, it's going to take us right up to the eve of the conquest of Canaan. And really it does just chronicle the success and the failings of the wilderness wanderings. Now... What about us? We know that all scripture is God-breathed. We know that these things are given for our learning. Well, as we go through this, we need to see ourselves, the church, very much portrayed in the things that we're going to be looking at. You know, as you and I survey our own wanderings, if you like, there's a great verse in Romans 6, verse 21, where Paul asks the question, says, What fruit have you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. If I may paraphrase that, Look at the things you used to do. Look at the things that used to be part of your life. Is there anything you can look at that you go, you know what, that really was good, I really missed that? Or do you look at those things from your past life and think, why did I do that? Why did I act that way? Why did I allow those things into my life? Paul makes the point, there's nothing there. It makes us ashamed when we look back and we see the way we used to behave, the way we used to think, the things we used to do. Well, this book is very much like that, and we'll see Israel making a number of mistakes. But these lessons are for us. We actually find, really, the purpose in all of this wandering. Obviously, the children of Israel wandered for 38 years. We have our own times of wandering in our Christian lives. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. Now this is the key. To humble thee. To prove thee. And to know what is in thine heart. Whether thou would keep his commandments or not. So God is saying that he allows us sometimes these times of wandering. But it's to prove us. It's to, it's to humble us first of all. To bring us to our knees. Because God wants to know really what's in our hearts. Why do you follow God? Why do you come to church? Is it because you don't have any other options or any other choices? Is it because you just feel you ought to? Or is it because your heart 
just compels you to because you want to be amongst God's people. You want to be doing things that you know please the Lord. Well, this is what this kind of journeying was all about. The Lord was trying and testing Israel. So the book of Numbers, is it just a boring list of numbers and a bit of history? Because there's a lot of numbers that we're going to see as we go through. If you've been reading through this week, uh, hopefully you have, and in our uh, daily Bible readings. Or is it a blueprint for the church? Well, actually it is a blueprint for the church. And that's not just my opinion, by the way, because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 12 verses... We have a great summary of that which we're going to look at this morning. And really it's subtitled, Learning from the Mistakes of the Past. Let's just have a quick look at that portion of scripture. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. Oh, how I love Paul. So often he uses this kind of phrase. You know, Christians, we shouldn't be ignorant. We should know the things of God. He says, How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all did eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Incredible, when you look at the children of Israel, they had this incredible beginning, this amazing deliverance from bondage. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea to this new life. Obviously we see our own mirror in these things, the way we've been led from sin through the waters of baptism. They were sustained by the bread of life, the manna that God provided. They were watered by the water of life, this water that came from the rock, which as we've just seen, Paul says, is symbolic of Christ. How could anything possibly go wrong? And yet we carry on and we read, but with many, that's a scary word, isn't it? But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. What did they lust after? Well, we're going to look at that as we go through this morning, but in a nutshell, it was that which was acceptable to the human palate. That's what they wanted. You know, do you know any churches that have abandoned the bread that God has provided in favour of that which is acceptable to the multitude? Sadly, so many churches have abandoned the word of God the food that God has given us to enrich us, to strengthen us. And they've gone to all sorts of other things. Paul says, Neither be you idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Question, what is idolatry? Well, quite simply, idolatry, we find listed for us in the the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, it's really the issue of misrepresentation. See, God is jealous of his name, his character, and his attributes. And anything that touches those is idolatry. You see, idolatry is effectively making a God in your own image, from your own imagination, to suit your own desires. And by the way, even if you call that God Lord. You know the golden calf, Exodus 33? They called it the Lord. They attributed this calf as the one that had led them out of Egypt. We see the same going on so frequently in the church today. They call that which they worship the Lord, and yet it's often just part of their imagination. They've made a God to suit themselves. A God, for example, that wouldn't send anybody to hell. A God that tolerates all sorts of things that the word of God clearly denounces. Paul carries on and says, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. What's fornication? What's fornication? 
Well, effectively, it's an intimate relationship with someone other than the one you're espoused to. And of course, through Israel's history, they committed spiritual fornication by going after or embracing false gods. And for us, we have exactly the same problem, that we can go after other things. You see, we've been espoused to Christ. We should be, as Paul puts it, as a chaste virgin to be given to Christ. And yet, how many times do we allow ourselves to go after other things? Paul says, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, or examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So that's our warning. Paul says, that which we're about to look at this morning has been written for us. They're examples for us. Really, the the book of Numbers is very much the church in the Old Testament. And we see so many types and shadows and parallels as we go through this. So we start Numbers chapter 1. And we kind of really see the scene is set here. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, so that's where they're camped at the moment, in the tabernacle of the congregation, this tent that's now been erected and built, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt. So this is when we're doing so Two years now into their um, departure from Egypt, at the base of Mount Sinai, getting ready to go. Interestingly, the book of Leviticus takes up just one month in terms of the time frame uh, that we find recorded through the book. So, the first four chapters, we're going to find that we've got a numbering of the adult males that were counted at Sinai, uh, those that were fit to go to war. Chapter 2 is going to give us the order of the tribes, where they're to camp, and so on, around the tabernacle. Chapter 3 will be the numbering of the priests and the Levites. They were to be numbered separately from the rest of the people. And chapter 4 is going to give us the duties of the Levites, the jobs they had to do. When they were to pack the tent away, the tabernacle, who was to carry what, how were they to do it? All of that is detailed. It's interesting, in the New Testament, we find Paul tells us, let all things be done decently and in order. And here we see that same God, who is the same yesterday, today, and, uh, and forever, doing things decently and in order. Everything uh, given specific instructions. We read then verse 2 of chapter 1, uh, but we're not going to read every single verse, by the way, through the book, just to have <laughs> any concerns you may have. Uh, Take you the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel after their families by the house of their fathers, with the number of their names, every male by their poles, from twenty years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. So they're to count all the men that are able to go to war from the age of twenty upwards. And with you there shall be a man of every tribe, over every head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men that shall stand with you. Now God is going to give Moses men that are going to stand with him, to support him, to help him in the work that he's been called to do. It's interesting that uh, if you remember back in the book of Exodus, Jethro comes on the scene about a year before this now and offers this advice to Moses. Oh, you're doing too much. You know, you need to slow down a little. And and this is what we should do. And he says, you know, this is what God has said. He presumptuously speaks on God's behalf. 
And he comes up with this system where roughly 78,000 judges are appointed over the nation. Do you know that none of those judges entered the promised land except two? You see, there's a difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. God does appoint people to support and help Moses, but it's in God's timing. At the end of chapter 1, we're given the total number there of those that were numbered, the men that were able to go to war. And you can see 603,550 is the number that's given from all the, the tribes that are counted, except the tribe of Levi. Remember also Genesis 46, God had promised that the seed of Jacob would become a great nation. God had made this promise uh, that they would leave Egypt. And he says that from there I will make of thee a great nation. Jacob went down to Egypt with 70 people and now they exist as a great nation. And we're given the numbers. Each uh, block, in a sense, has a block of three. So Reuben is the, kind of the, the standard bearer and with him will camp Simeon and Gad. Judah has Issachar and Zebulun. Ephraim has Manasseh and Benjamin. And then Dan will have Asher and Nathalie camping with him. So around the tabernacle, these uh, four separate groups. And again, the number of the men 20 years old and above, 603,550. Now, we're going to chapter 2. Uh, it's interesting, just to make mention, uh, obviously we're familiar with Jacob. He has the 12 sons, one of them being Levi. Levi has three sons, Gershon, Koath, and Merari. Now these are the sons that camp around the tabernacle. Moses and the priests would camp on one side here, and the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. So these are the names that we're going to see, and as you read through the book of Numbers, you see these names coming up. That's who we're talking about. It's the descendants of the sons of Levi. Now, they were told to camp in the cardinal points, as it were, from the tabernacle. So the tribe of uh, uh, Judah, for example, was to camp on the east side of the tabernacle. Now, strictly speaking, the camp of the Levites would extend around the, the camp of the, the tabernacle itself by whatever uh, amount of size, depending on how many people were camping. So you'd have a particular length, as it were, on one side of the camp. So Judah would camp on the east side. Now, if we're going to be strict according to uh, the rabbinical rules and everything else, um, they wouldn't be able to camp in this area here, because that's not particularly east. That's kind of southeast. It's moving away. So what they would t tend to do is to camp moving outwards. So as long as the width stayed the same, the number of people would just move out as you get further and further away from the tabernacle. Well, the same thing, of course, we find with Reuben. Reuben and all those who were camping with him would camp on their particular side of the tabernacle. The camp of Ephraim, the same, moving out. And again, then the camp of Dan. So they're all camped around the tabernacle. Now, as I say, they have these standard bearers. We have Judah, Ephraim, Reuben, and Dan are the ones that head up their, their respective groups, as it were. They all had a tribal standard, a, a, an ensign, a flag, if you like, uh, they would have. And as they camped around the tabernacle, what is amazing is what you would see if you looked upon this from the air. Remember Exodus 25, verse 8, the Lord had said that he would dwell among them. So the tabernacle becomes the center of their worship. And then they camp, spreading out from the tabernacle. Well, if you were to look from the air, that's what you'd see as they camped around the tabernacle, forming, as it were, a cross. Judah has as their tribal standard a lion. 
And of course, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Reuben would have an ox. Ephraim would have a man, as their standard, their symbol, as it were. And the tribe of Dan would have an eagle. All of those point to Jesus Christ. An ox is a beast of burden, a servant, if you like. And Jesus came to serve. Ephraim would have a man, and Jesus, of course, was a perfect man. Dan, an eagle, that which soars above, which is above our ways, above our thoughts, as it were. What's also interesting is that we see those same symbols are represented in the face of the cherubim. We read about in Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Revelation, etc. The ox, the man, the eagle, the lion, those beasts, those living creatures that have four faces. All, again, represented and speaking of Jesus Christ. The names are also interesting. Judah's name means praise. Ephraim means fruitful. Reuben means affliction. And Dan means judged. Again, all of those speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, that pattern we see throughout Scripture, even in the design of the Gospels. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. Again, the ox being the appropriate symbol. Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. And John presents Jesus as the Son of God. Mystically, that eagle that is above our ways and our thinking. Just incredible design that we see throughout the Bible. We move on to chapters 3 and 4. And in chapter 3, we have the numbering of the priests and the Levites. And in chapter 4, the duties, the things that they were to do uh, in regard to moving of the tabernacle. The Gershonites were to look after the the clothes, the curtains, and the linen fences. Uh, The Kohathites looked after all the holy objects, so things like the the ark, uh, the menorah, all the tables, the altars, and so on. Uh, And then the Merarites, their job was to look after the boards, the bars, the pillars, the actual framework of the tabernacle. Again, just uh, so you're familiar, the tabernacle was built with this kind of fencing around it, but then these different layers of uh, different materials that overlaid it. Each one of those, in its own way, again, points to Jesus Christ. And typically the tabernacle would look something like this, with this fence around it. Everything laid on silver sockets. Um, Silver, through scripture, has this implication of redemption. Um, The whole idea being that everything is built on the redemptive work of Jesus. And again, that which was in the tabernacle, we have, of course, um, the, uh, the altar with the mercy seat above it, uh, the uh, incense altar, and so on, uh, the menorah, the candlestick, uh, the um, table of showbread, and so on, uh, and the door. The door, again, being on the side of the tribe of Judah. The only entrance into the tabernacle was through the tribe of Judah. And, of course, Jesus being representative. Jesus said that he is the door. And every part of that furniture speaks again of Jesus, uh, bearing uh, our iniquity and so on for us. Now, the requirements of service for the priests, for those that were going to serve and the, um, those of the tribe of Levi, is men of 30 years old. So for the men of war, they counted from 20 years old. But if you were going to serve in ministry, it was 30 years and above, up to 50. Now, it's interesting... Um, I think it's uh, right now. Matthew Henry says that the priests serving mustn't be novices. Now, don't we find Paul saying the same thing? That those that are being given roles within the church shouldn't be novices? They must be 
or Matthew Henry says, they must learn before they teach, serve before they rule, and must first be proved. Same ideas going on with the children of Israel and the tabernacle as we see with the church. And the book of Numbers is split into various sections. So that first section we've just kind of reviewed briefly there um, is really this, the Egyptian generation, those that had come out of Egypt. And it's really to do with the organisation of the camp and what they were going to do. The next section um, really deals with the sanctification uh, of, the, of Israel and so on. And broken down into various sections. We, we see chapter 5, the sanctification of the camp. Chapter 6, this Nazarite vow. Chapter 7 gives us the giving of the law. Chapter 8 will be the lampstand and some of the duties of the Levites. And then chapter 9 deals with the Passover. And we'll comment on that in a moment when we get there. <clears throat> the underlying theme, as I said, all of this thing, is the sanctification and the cleansing of the church. Just briefly, chapter 5, we're told at the opening there that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, and everyone that has an issue, and whosoever is defiled by the dead. So these things, leper deals of course with unaddressed sin. We've been talking about that in the previous session, how sin is uh, symbolically seen as uh, leprosy. This issue really is talking about that which comes from the heart, uh, and obviously you're dealing with an unchanged heart. And then defiled by the dead. Well of course we live in a world of people that are spiritually dead. And so we can see in this that uh, that which was to be removed from the camp are those that are having uh, issues with sin that are not being addressed. Of course we all sin, we all struggle with sin. John makes it very clear in First John. If we say we've got no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, John says. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. But there are those who carry on in their sin, thinking they can get away with it. There are those with an unchanged or unrepentant heart. And there are those that are tainted by the world. In the camp of Israel, they will be put out of the camp. God was very clear about that. We were talking about this a little bit on Thursday evening in our Bible study. And of course, within a church, it may seem cruel, it may seem harsh, and of course, the world would look at us and say, but the church shouldn't do that. Oh yes, we should. Because the church mustn't be polluted. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, we're told. We're told... Verse 4, And the children of Israel did so and put them out without the camp, as the Lord spoke unto Moses, so did the children of Israel. It's true that a healthy body rejects poison from its system. And so a healthy church will do likewise. Revelation 3.16 is your reference for that. Chapter 6, we get to this Nazarite vow. There's a particular vow that a, a Jew could take. Any of the children of Israel were free to take this vow. The word Nazarite simply means separate. Don't confuse it with Nazareth, which was a town in Galilee, um, in uh, northern Israel. Um, Nazarite is separate. It just means separate. Um, it was this act of sanctification. Now, there are those in Scripture that were Nazarites from their birth. Samson was one of them. Samuel, another. And John the Baptist, also another. And then also we have Paul, for example, in the New Testament, who chooses on a couple of occasions, as recorded in the book of Acts, to take this vow. And essentially, through the period of this vow, you were to remain sober. Your strength would be in the Lord, and you were to be separated. You had to let your hair grow, you weren't allowed to, to shave your hair and so on. Uh, that was part of the, uh, the conditions and rules. But it's interesting because 
If you became defiled, you touched a dead body or something happened, all of the former achievements, if you'd have got partway through your vow and then something happens, everything up until that point is lost. There's no building up of equity of righteousness with God, as one commentator put it. So just as God's mercy is new every morning, yesterday's victories are just that. You know, how often do we have those moments in our walk with the Lord that we just feel everything's wonderful, we're praising God, something great's happened. Maybe on a Sunday we go home from church and we just feel really close to the Lord. But that doesn't carry over till Monday. Monday's a new day. And we need to go back to the Lord. Just as that manna was new every day, and the, the children of Israel had to go out and take of that manna, well, so it is with us before the Lord. You know, and recovering lost ground is hard. When we give in to the flesh in any way, it's very hard to reclaim that. Chapter 7 of Numbers, a very interesting chapter, one of the longest chapters in the book of Numbers. Um, the children of Israel, these representatives that were there to support Moses, each bring an offering. And if you read through this this week, you may have got a bit tired towards the end of the chapter because you find that the first of the princes will offer a silver plate, a silver bowl. They were to be uh, full of flour mingled with the oil for the meat offering. There were a uh, gold spoon of incense and different weights for these things. They were to bring a bullock, a ram, a lamb for a burnt offering. And then a young goat which was to be brought for a sin offering. And then two oxen, five rams, five goats, five lambs. Those are to be brought for a peace offering. And you read through all of these details. And then you get to the second prince. And then you get all the same details given to you again. And the third prince. And then you get all... And it's like, why can't we just say the same as the first one? Well, there's a very good reason for that. What's the lesson? Everything you give is recorded. You see, these individuals were real people. And they were bringing their offerings to the Lord. And the Lord records every single thing that every individual brought. Just because it was the same as somebody else didn't mean it didn't get recorded or, yeah, just the same as. No, God records everything that we bring. Every detail was remembered. We read in Scripture that God has a number of books. Of course, there's the book of life. There's a book of works made reference to in Revelation 20.12. And there's a book of tears that Psalm 56 refers to. You see, what we see from this is that God is just and he's a God who sees, he knows. He sees everything you do for him. And nothing that you do for the Lord is wasted. Chapter 8, we then get to the lampstand and the Levites. The lampstand itself is very interesting. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak unto Aaron and say to him, When you light the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light over against the candlestick. And Aaron did so. He lighted the lamps thereof over against the candlestick. And by the way, the King James says candlestick. It would be better to translate that as lampstand. A candlestick um, has the implication of a candle, as we're familiar. Candles didn't exist at this time. So we're dealing with a lampstand, as the Lord commanded Moses. And this work of the lampstand was of beaten gold. Unto the shaft thereof, unto the flowers thereof, was beaten work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses so he made the lampstand. So everything's made of one lump of gold. And notice it's according to the pattern. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, God had given him the pattern. Now, I can't resist showing you this. I got this from Ron Matson, who in turn got it from Bob Cornuke, who had been to Arabia, been to Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia, and Paul makes that clear. And we talked about that in our Exodus study. 
This is a rock on Mount Sinai, blackened, burnt, seemingly. If you notice here, we have carved into the rock what is very clearly a menorah. How did it get there in Saudi Arabia? Well, I just wonder whether God is giving Moses all these instructions for the things of the tabernacle. Moses is going, Lord, just slow down. Hang on, I need to make some notes. Whether he's just scribbling some of these things. You just wonder, I don't know. But this is up the mountain. uh, And they found this. And there's various other Hebrew symbols and signs located around that. It's very interesting just to share that with you. But the lampstand itself then, it was the only source of light in the tabernacle. Without the holy oil, it couldn't give light. Of course, we see a type and shadow of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't give light. There was one lampstand. Of course, one being the number for God. There is just one God. Six branches. Six being the number of man. The lampstand is a vessel to hold up the light in the darkness. Jesus himself says, that this lampstand is representative of the church. Revelation 1 verse 20 tells us that. The lampstand, interestingly, was the only piece of furniture in the tabernacle where we're given the design, but no dimensions were given. It was also, as I said, made of pure gold. It was refined, purified. And it was made from one talent of beaten gold. Well, interestingly, the church, of course, is one body and effectively formed through the trials that we go through. Talent has various uh, suggested weights of what it would have been at that time. But interestingly, the Jews have a problem in terms of how to support the branches, because the weight of the branches would naturally cause them to droop. If it was gold, gold's not a particularly strong metal, it's quite a soft metal. So the mystery is, how could it support itself? And even in the replicas they've made, they've had to support it by strengthening rods and so on inside. Well, of course, what it means is that this lampstand needed supernatural strengthening. And all of these things we see is a beautiful picture of the church. That is a picture of the lampstand. Um, the Temple Institute have made this. Uh, you can see from the height of the people how tall it is. Um, it's now been moved from this location in Jerusalem to within sight of the Temple Mount. Um, the Jews are getting ready to put this in their newly rebuilt temple. Um, again, keep watching the news. Again, the light comes from the oil, as we said, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the lampstand is simply the vessel to hold up the light in the darkness. Again, the lampstand is representative of the church. We see wonderful pictures of these things. Chapter 9, then, we get a, a review of the Passover. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year, after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover. And then we're given all the details around the Passover, when it should take place and everything, the 14th day of the first month and so on. It's interesting because what did the Passover represent? Well, to the children of Israel, it represented their deliverance from slavery. It was freedom bought with the blood of a lamb. A continual reminder that their freedom was not earned. In other words, they were to continually do this so that they would never lose sight of where it all began. You see, remembering the Passover also assured them of their future rest because God had called them out to take them into the promised land. We have our own memorial that is drawn from the Passover. The Passover actually was itself a model 
point of the death of Jesus Christ in our place. And we have our communion service, which we're told to do in remembrance. See, the Passover was the model of the real deliverance. The deliverance from sin. The freedom bought with the blood of the Lamb. And we're to continually remember that our freedom was not earned. Again, we should never lose sight of where it began. This is why we continually celebrate our communion. And of course, remembering the communion that we share together also assures us of our future rest. As Jesus told Paul, we're to drink of that cup until we drink it anew with Jesus in his kingdom. So as we carry on, the next section then, the camp of Israel is ready to leave. After all the preparation, they now get up and they begin their journey to the promised land. Uh, suddenly heading off to this place called Kadesh. Chapter 10, well we're given there the order of march, how the, the camp was to go. The ark, Moses and Aaron would lead the way, followed by the camp of Judah, then Gershon and Merari bringing the tabernacle and the bits, then the camp of Reuben, the Kohathites would bring the holy things, and then the camp of Ephraim would follow on with the camp of Dan. And finally at the back there would be the mixed multitude. Now these were those, many had come out of Egypt, some of the Egyptians, some of those that may have served the Israelites in various capacities, or those that simply just saw from the miracles that God was on Israel's side. And so they also left. So at the back of the camp there was this mixed multitude. Now it's very interesting, if we look at the order of March, in terms of the names of the children of Israel, what can, what can we learn from that list? We've already seen how these names all have meanings. Well, how about this? Reuben, as we've seen already, means kind of looked or affliction. There's this kind of uh, dual uh, aspect to the name. So if we put this together, what we'd see is, He has looked on my affliction in Egypt. For God hears me. And now good fortune comes. I will praise the Lord. For He has purchased me and leads me to a good dwelling with double fruit and of course they were to have their milk and honey he will make me forget my toil as the firstborn son of his right hand God has vindicated me happy will I be yet through wrestling well doesn't that tell the story of our lives that's incredible there's another list if we look at the names as we have them in birth order of the tribes, this also is quite interesting. Again, as we said, Reuben looked affliction. Simeon has his hearing or heard. And uh, going through all of the different tribes, what we see is something that's also quite remarkable. You see, they seem to tell the history of the nation of Israel. The first group seemed to deal with that time in Egypt. God looked on their affliction. He heard. They were joined to the Lord. And then this praise that comes forth as they're delivered. The next group, as it were, in the wilderness, they were judged, judgment, they're wrestlings, but they prevailed. And then in the land, this troop that came, happy, they had their dwelling in the land, and they served the Lord and so on. And then finally, in the kingdom age, adding the son of my right hand. So even in that order, the names seem to spell out the future and the history of the nation of Israel. Moving on to chapter 11, 
When the people complained, now this becomes almost a national pastime, this murmuring. It displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. This is why we need to pay attention to the details in Scripture. Those furthest away from the tabernacle were those that were consumed. The tabernacle represented the dwelling of God. We could say those that were furthest away from God are the ones that get consumed. Notice that the Lord hears this complaining. And we talk, and the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. Interesting that it's the mixed multitude. Again, notice the order of march, those that were at the back. Satan will always try and pick off those stragglers in the congregation. Those that are not keeping up. Those that are at the back. Those that maybe have a a mixed heart. The mixed multitude that was among the fellow lusting and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Interesting, isn't it? Such short-term memories that they have. See, they rejected the bread that God had provided here. Again, typical of the word of God. Desiring to go back to Egypt, which of course is a type of the world. They'd forgotten the taskmasters though. Notice they'd remembered the good things. They'd forgotten those taskmasters that sent them out every day to deliver their quota of bricks. And all the male children that were being born, that were being killed by the Egyptians. They'd forgotten those things. And the fact that they got so desperate, they cried out to the Lord. You know, we can sometimes play around with things of the world, but we forget how bad it really was. Just like the children of Israel. Galatians 4, verse 9, Paul speaking to the Galatian church, the Galatian Christians. He says, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Paul amazed at the Galatian Christians that they were getting back into the things of their old life, putting themselves back under the law. It's so sad how quickly we can forget all the blessings. Moses, at this point, gets quite upset with God. And actually, God gets quite cross with Moses as well. He says, have I conceived this people? Have I begotten them? And Moses basically is saying, where am I going to get the flesh to give them to eat? Because the people are saying they want to eat something. They want to eat meat. And Moses is saying, how can I do this, God? Well, the question, of course, is when did it become Moses' responsibility? God had never asked Moses to provide this for the people. Moses just took upon himself this burden. You see, the arm of the Lord is not shortened. We read in the book of Isaiah, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy, that it cannot hear. You know, when we feel a burden is being placed upon us, we need to remember we should go to the Lord. Because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. There's a great quote that I want to read from Oswald Chambers. He says, If we undertake work for God and get out of touch with him, the sense of responsibility will be overwhelmingly crushing. But if we roll back on God that which he has put on us, he takes away the sense of responsibility by bringing in the realisation of himself. I love that quote. Because in my own life I've seen that. There are times that I've got out of touch with God and the sense of responsibility, the weight 
is overwhelmingly crushing. And you start to become, it's like the Martha and Mary situation. You look around what everybody else is doing and you start to think, well, they're not doing something or they're not doing something or why should I have to do all the serving? Now, when we're serving God, when we're walking with God, it doesn't matter how much we're doing, it's a privilege, it's a blessing. And we have this sweet fellowship with the Lord. I think that Moses, most of the time, he's, he's in a good place with his walk with the Lord. This is one of those moments where, to me, it just seems that he starts to take on something that God had never asked him to take on. God tells Moses to say to the people to sanctify themselves because the next day they were going to eat flesh. He says, For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who will give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh and you shall eat. You shall not eat one day or two days nor five days, neither ten days nor twenty days, but even a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils. And it be loathsome unto you, because you have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? Just think about that. How could we as Christians ever think, oh, Why did I ever become a Christian? Well, that's what they were doing. And sadly, in our own hearts, we know there are times that we almost go there. We almost see people in the world having their success or whatever they're doing. And we can be tempted to see, think, if I wasn't a Christian, huh, no, we should never allow ourselves to make that journey. Again, where the problem began? With a mixed multitude. How dangerous it is to have a mixed multitude in a congregation. It's interesting that we're told and this in Psalm 106. Then believed they his words. They sang his praises. Of course, their deliverance from Egypt. But they soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. You know, you can have out the world. You can go after all the things the world has got to offer. But it will bring leanness to your soul. It will bring emptiness. Satan is full of these lies and his promises, but he never delivers. The people stood up all that day and all that night and the next day and they gathered the quails. The Lord causes wind to blow quails into the camp. And they gathered as much as they wanted. But then we're told, verse 33, that while the flesh was yet between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatahavar, because there they buried the people that lusted. How sad this is. This place, Kibroth Hatahavar, means the graves of lust. How many fall here and never make it to the inheritance that God has for them? You see, God is calling us to go to this promised land, this place of milk and honey, the place where he will provide all their needs, the place where there will be this rest for them. For us, of course, it's the same. And how many of us fall at the graves of lust, the things of this world that we hanker after. In chapter 12, we find that Miriam and Aaron then start to speak against Moses, and we're told because of the Ethiopian woman whom he'd married, for he'd married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And uh, seemingly, most commentators think it was added by Ezra at a later point. We have this editorial comment. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which are upon the face 
of the earth. It's one of those things, I'm sure Moses himself wouldn't have written that. That would be like if I said, you know, can all the humble people please stand up? You know, it's not going to... So is this sibling rivalry, the situation with Aaron and Miriam? What was the cause of the outburst? Well, some people think it was just that. It was just jealousy. Moses certainly was revered. But, you know, Aaron was also revered. He was the high priest. And Miriam was a prophetess. They were looked up to by all the people. I think there's another reason possibly for this. And it's to do with this mixture that they've just witnessed, that we've just been looking at. And Moses, of course, is married to this Ethiopian woman. And they see that as a problem. And I think that may be why, at this point, they, they stand up and have this problem with Moses. You see, was it wrong for Moses to have this Ethiopian wife? Well, God doesn't prohibit, in, prohibit it in Scripture at all. In fact, arguably, he sanctions it because nothing's said about it. The key? Well, Moses' attitude of heart. You see, Moses had this liberty with the Lord. But that which may have been acceptable for Moses could have been a stumbling block for others. And of course Paul deals with that issue in the New Testament for us as well. So, as we move on, we get to this place, Kadesh itself. At Kadesh, a very significant point in the journey. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send thou men that they may search out the land of Canaan. Of course we know what happens. We have a representative from every tribe. They're sent off and they go and survey the land. Now whose idea was it to send these spies in? Was it God's? Was it his thought to spy out the land? Well no, God didn't need anybody to spy out the land. He knows everything already. J. Vernon McGee comments and says, We always need to get a composite picture from the word of God. Because many times, one facet will be given in one place and another facet given in another place. Although we get the impression here that this is God's idea, we find that he was responding to their request. And in the book of Deuteronomy we read, And I said unto you, God speaking, that you are come unto the mount of the Amorites which the Lord our God does give us. Behold, the Lord thy God has set the land before thee. Go up and possess it as the Lord um, God of thy father has said unto thee, Fear not, neither be discouraged, we're told. So God has said, Go in. Just go and take the land. But then we read, Deuteronomy 1, uh, verse 22, And you came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search out the land, and bring us word again, by what way we must go up, and into what cities we shall come. So here, we find that actually it was the people's idea. They send people in. Of course, Joshua and Caleb are the only ones that come back with a good report. The outcome seemingly had already been decided. They didn't trust God to give them the victory because God had already said, go up and I will give you victory. You see, in their own strength, they were bound to fail. Foolishly, some of them make the, uh, the attempt afterwards to try and go up and they're defeated. Um, and they're defeated in this whole region, these two places, Zin, southern Israel and Hamath are mentioned. So if you read them in the, in the text in Numbers, that's what it's talking about. They've left Sinai down here and they're in this wilderness of Paran, okay, in this area at this moment. So. And we're told also in Deuteronomy chapter 1, there are 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. It should have taken just 11 days to get to this point. And yet we find 38 years later they end up back at the same point. So now they move on. And we have this whole uh, area now, this wilderness of Paran, these wanderings for uh, this period of time. Picking up in chapter 14, 
Well, the congregation again lift up their voice and they wept all that night and the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said, Oh, would to God that we died in the land of Egypt. Oh, would to God that we died in this wilderness. God kind of says, I could arrange that. Wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? <laughs> Incredible. See, before it was just the mixed multitude. Now the whole congregation has become infected with this murmuring and so on. God says, Because of all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and God says, And have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. We're given those ten times actually in Scripture. The first time was at the Red Sea when they doubted and they wanted to lynch Moses effectively. Then as they've crossed the Red Sea at Marah where the waters were bitter. In the wilderness of Sinai and then God provides the manna. In the story of manna and they, go, they try to bring him into their tents and keep it and of course he goes moldy. The gathering of manna on the Sabbath, again they disobeyed God. At Rephidim when they cry out for water and again they're ready to lynch Moses and Moses strikes the rock. At Horeb, the golden calf, situation. At uh, Tabira, with this uh, burning, Numbers uh, 11, we just looked at a moment ago, and the graves of Luffs, Kibrath Hatar Avar, the ninth, and then the tenth time here now at Kadesh. And God said, enough is enough. And brings this judgment upon them that those who'd, who left Egypt would not move into the promised land. And this is why then they have this 38 years of wandering. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, When you become into the land of your habitations, which I give unto you. I just want to make mention of this in chapter 15. When? I find great comfort in that. Because through all of the trials, through all of the problems, God doesn't say, That's it, I've had enough, over. God is still going to keep his promises. He says, when you become into the land. See, our disobedience does not thwart God's plan, but it can have a profound consequences for us. Again, the issue is that of inheritance. And we make a very interesting study if we uh, start to explore scriptures in that regard. But many of those who left Egypt, they've been saved from the Egyptians. They passed through the waters but they never made it to the promised land. They never got that which God had promised them or that they could have had. Chapter 16. Well, we move on. and We get this interesting situation now with this individual Korah. I want to just highlight, if we come down the tribe of Levi, we've got Kohath. Kohath has a number of sons. Amram, who has Moses as his second son. And then Yishar, who has a son, Korah. So Moses and Korah were cousins. They were related. They were family. Korah, the son of Esau, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of uh, Pereth, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of um, the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So they go and get a, a gang of people together. And they come to Moses. Adam Clark, his commentary, puts it this way. He says, 
the way he translates it's now Korah, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Karath, and the son of Levi. He took even Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Pelath, the son of Reuben, and they rose up. The point he's making is that the sons of Korah weren't caught up in this. Korah himself and others that he got alongside him got caught up in this. But, he, but his sons seemingly didn't, and I'll explain why in a moment. They gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. So they bring this accusation against Moses. But let me ask the question, who had lifted Moses and Aaron up? That question, who gave you authority? I've had that said to me on numerous occasions. Well, you're a pastor. Oh, who ordained you? You see, it's so often those who are ordained by men who question those ordained by God. I mean, somebody once did ask me this question. Well, who ordained you? God. Who ordained you? A bishop. Okay. Carry on. The arrangements of the camp we looked at earlier, this is where the Korah and his uh, individuals alongside him, this is where they would have camped. Their job was to look after the holy objects. They had a really important role before the Lord. And yet, it wasn't enough. Does it strike that chord again when we think back to Satan? He had that privileged position, and yet he wanted man's position. You see Satan working through all of these things. We haven't said much about Satan and his plan over the last few sessions, but in the opening sessions we were talking lots about the way Satan just has his plan to try and usurp and take that which is not rightfully his. We also looked at the way the camps were there, and noticed that it's the... Korah, who was camped here, and those from Reuben, right next to him. They've been talking to each other. This had been going on for obviously a little bit of time. And no doubt looking at Moses, and this problem escalates. Well, we know what happens. God judges. When it came to pass, we made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder. And that was under them. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained to Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit. Hades, Sheol, the same name used in scripture. And the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. People may look at this and say, oh, those kind of things couldn't happen. And we've seen these sinkholes recently on the news have been opening up. I just wonder. doesn't matter what it was. God caused the ground to open up. It can happen. In Psalm 84, though, the title of Psalm 84 we have written to the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm for the sons of Korah. And we read, verse 1, How amiable or how lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And notice what verse 10 says. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, and that was the job that the sons of Korah ended up with. In the temple, serving with David and Solomon, on from there. Their role was to be doorkeepers, effectively. They said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
This memory, albeit sometime later, still, still seems to be very fresh in their mind as they think back to what their ancestor had done. Chapter 17, just to mention one point here, the Lord spoke to Moses, again, speak to the children of Israel, and everyone wants to take a rod. And they all take their rods. Aaron's rod then bursts into life. It buds. It comes forth with flower. And that rod is then placed within the Ark of the Covenant. Again, God vindicating those who he appointed and had chosen. Chapter 18 Really, Aaron here is pointed out, God makes it very clear that Aaron and his sons were to be representative of the nation. They had a great responsibility placed on them. As I said, they were to represent God to the nation. In effect, they were to be ambassadors. Korah, of course, had not represented God to the people. And God now underlines that vital role. And the role that you and I have to be ambassadors. The Lord spoke to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, he said. Neither shall you have any part among them, for I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. Now this fulfills a prophecy from Genesis, where Jacob was prophesying as he was about to die, saying that Levi would be scattered in Israel. And of course they were. But because they stood up with Moses with the situation with the golden calf, the Lord then allows them to become this priestly tribe. And they, they don't have any actual inheritance in the land. And as a royal priesthood, we too are to represent our king to this world. And we have no inheritance in this world either. A lovely picture once again. Just another point here of the gifts that they were to be given. Specifically, some of the gifts that were mentioned, and this is talking of the best thereof, the things that would be given, the increase of the threshing floor and the increase of the wine press. What's that? Bread and wine. That ultimate offering. We just see these subtle types all the way through the text. Chapter 19. We get a chapter on the uh, water of purification. Um, what was required were the ashes of a red heifer. I was Googling the pictures. I found that one. I just thought that was quite funny. This red cow was born and I think I'm in trouble now. There's only nine ever been recorded in the history of Israel. And in 2002, a red heifer was born, but then they discovered it had other coloured hairs, so it was disqualified. And the Jews, though, are still actively seeking in preparation for the next temple. This, the ashes of this red heifer to be put in the water of purification. They were using in a number of cases, and uh, through the book of Numbers, it's mentioned on a couple of occasions. Chapter 20. Well, the children of Israel, even the whole congregation um, came to the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh were told that Miriam there dies. And there was no water. So what do the people do? Well, they moan, they rise up against Moses and Aaron again. And just, you know, would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? What a stupid thing to say, and yet... Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die? Wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? This is a recurring theme. Again, moaning because there's no water. Moses and Aaron went forth from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Take the rod and gather the assembly together, you and Aaron, your brother, and speak unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and you shall bring forth to them water out of the rock. 
And so you shall give the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses was specifically told to speak unto the rock. But what we find is that then Moses lifts up his hand and we're told, smote the rock twice. And the water does come out. But as a result of this, God is cross with Moses. He says, because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. What a sad moment for Moses, who'd done so much, being faithful, and yet at this point, doesn't do what God has said to him. Why this situation? Well, at Rephidim, Moses there was told to strike the rock and water flowed from it. But at Meribah, here now, he's directed to speak to the rock, but he doesn't do that. He strikes the rock instead. And again, as we said, denied entry into the promised land because of that. What's the model? What's this about? Well, quite simply, the rock, Paul tells us, we've seen already, symbolic of Jesus Christ. The first time, Christ was smitten. But the second time, in glory. And actually, Moses breaks the model because he's not obedient. Moses sent messages from Kadesh to the king of Eden. And said, Israel's your brother. And he asked permission to come to the land. We know, going back to Abraham, and we get Isaac, and then Jacob, and Israel, and then from, obviously becomes Edom, the nation of Edom. Uh, we have Ammon uh, and Moab as well, who come from Lot. So these three are related, in a sense, back through to Abraham. Um, if we look at where they come on the map, this obviously we recognize as Israel. Well, Ammon, Moab, and Edom were all on this side. And uh, now we're trying, they're asking permission to come through this land of Edom. And uh, that land, the permission is refused. Edom refused to give Israel passage. As a result of this, God will later, will later judge Edom, Edom for their treatment of Israel and also for the way they were dealt with later. And God foretells their judgment. A number of scriptures, um, particularly the book of Obadiah, which actually deals with that subject. So drawing to a close, and we're going to just move quickly through these last few um, chapters now, but just one thing to highlight here. In chapter 21, we get this situation where we read the King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the, uh, way of the spies and fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And of course, God does exactly that. God made this promise that they would have the land and utterly destroy them. Why would God allow that? It wasn't just an act of revenge. You've got to remember who the people were inhabiting the land. And we've looked in detail already at the situation that's explained to us in Genesis chapter 6 with these Nephilim, these giants, and the offspring of these giants that then infected the land that Satan used to try and stop the seed of the woman. We could spend a long time going into all of those things. The journey from Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to the, uh, encompass the land of Edom. And again, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither any water. And our soul loathes this light bread. So manna was still being provided and was provided all the way up until the time they crossed the Jordan. And then we read that the Lord said to Moses, because what God did was send snakes among the people to bite them. And so they cry out again. And God says, make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. It shall come to pass that everyone that's bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. 
And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. This is incredible. And by the way, this serpent on the pole has become the symbol of the medical profession to this day. You may be familiar with these kind of signs and the pins that even nurses wear in their uniforms today. We have these kind of serpents wrapped around a pole and so on. Uh, it's often linked back to uh, Asclepius, um, the Greek god of medicine and so on. Um, but it predates that to this portion here that we're looking at. Brass in scripture speaks of judgment, of course the serpent speaking of sin. So we have sin judged and put on a pole. What was required to be delivered from the bites? Well, faith in the only remedy that God had prescribed. Was God obligated to provide the remedy? No, not at all. It was purely a work of grace. The, the cure, though, couldn't be passed on to another. Each individual had to look for themselves. In John's Gospel, we read John three fourteen and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Even so, and we have this, whosoever, whosoever looks will have eternal life. You see, we've all been bitten by sin. We're all as dead. Only by faith in the one remedy that God prescribed can we be saved. And each person has to look to the cross themselves. It's entirely by grace, not of works. Well, Numbers chapter 22, we get to a well-known situation. King Balak has a problem. He doesn't want Israel to come anywhere near him. He's distressed because of the children of Israel. So he sends and hires this man called Balaam. Balaam, of course, disobeys God in going with the representatives of King Balak because there's a great reward on offer. But Balaam's unable to curse Israel and later actually counsels Balak, of course, how to bring defeat. Of course, there's uh, lots of things you could draw out of this. What Balaam actually does is suggest that Balak puts all his pretty girls on the border near where the men of Israel would be. And see how that works. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But, of course, you can't make deals with the flesh. It's an appetite that will consume to destruction. Sin, it's been said before, will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. J. Vernon McGee says this, Did you know that there is more sin in Scripture about Balaam than there is about Mary, the mother of Jesus? There is more said about Balaam than about any of the apostles. The New Testament mentions him three times, and in each time it is in connection with apostasy. In 2 Peter, we're told about the way of Balaam. In Jude, we're told about the error of Balaam. And in Revelation, we're told about the doctrine of Balaam. A very interesting character. But in chapter 23, we see Balaam say to Balak, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord has not defied? He says, For... From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. We see here a number of prophecies given by this apostate prophet. The first prophecy is that he'll dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nations. Well, 
Adam Clark says, they shall ever be preserved as a distinct nation. This prophecy has been literally fulfilled through a period of 3,300 years to the present day. This is truly astonishing. In fact, that Israel are not reckoned among the nations. Israel are the only member of the UN that are not permitted to chair the Security Council. <laughs> the only democracy in the Middle East as well. And they're not recognized on any Arab map. They're not reckoned among the nations. The prophecy carries on. It says, Who can count the dust of Jacob and number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. The second prophecy. Israel will be without number. Confirming what was said to Abraham in Genesis 12. The third prophecy. Israel's end will be in blessing. Of course, we know it well. The Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and, God's, and said, Go again to Balak and say thus, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. That's amazing. Think of all the things we've been looking at. And yet God says, I look at them and I don't see their sin. Neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord is God, is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. We could talk about unicorns, a very interesting subject, not those mythical rainbow kind of horse things. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God regards our standing, not our situation. In Romans, Paul puts it like this, even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without work, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. God looks at Israel and says to Balaam, I don't see any sin with them. Well, how comforting that when God looks at you and I, the same thing happens. He sees no sin because he sees the completed work of Christ his son. This carries on and the prophecy says in verse 7 of chapter 24, He shall pour the water out of his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters and his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Prophecy number four, Israel's descendants will be in many waters, spread around the world. Well, don't we know that's been fulfilled to the letter? The fifth prophecy, Israel are destined to have a king higher than all the nations. Well, praise God that we know who it is. It's King Jesus. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He coughed, he lay down as a lion, as a great lion. Who shall stir him? Blessed is he that blesses thee, and cursed is he that curses thee. The sixth prophecy, Israel will be victorious over their enemies. And finally, blessing and cursing will be promised to the nations. An amazing portion of scripture, really worth rereading and making notes of these things are uttered by this man, who speaks what God wants him to speak, even though he himself was out for profit. Well, in chapter 25, we find that Israel do sin because they end up getting into these relationships with the Moabites. And God is very cross. God's anger is kindled against them because of this. And there's this particular individual, and we find that that individual is dealt with, is, is killed, because he ends up bringing his Midianite um, uh, daughter into, his, into the camp. Um, but there's this plague that goes amongst the camp and the Lord stops it. Chapter 26 and 27, 
well, that's really preparing to enter the land. There's the second numbering of the nation. And then we also get an interesting bit in 27, the daughters of Zelophehad. And that's regarding the rules of inheritance. Interestingly, Zelophehad had five daughters. The eldest daughter was called Mala, which is where Mala comes from. And this is a prophecy. I'm not suggesting we're going to have another couple of girls, but we're well on our way. But um, the rules of inheritance, very significant at this point. Mention just a moment. But we're coming now to this last little section. This is the second numbering of the nation on the plains of Moab. And this generation now that will enter the promised land. This time we find this 601,730. There's a decrease of 1,820. In 38 years the nation had gone backward. There's a spiritual lesson for us here, and that's that in the spiritual realm, there is no neutral. If you're not going forward, you're regressing, you're going backward. As I said, chapter 27, this rules of exception, because it was normally the son that would inherit, Marla, the eldest daughter, goes to Moses and says, well, what are we going to do? We don't want to lose our a father's uh, inheritance. And this particular exception is granted, and Joshua confirms it. The husband will be adopted by the father of the bride. And we see this play out in a dramatic way with Mary and Joseph. And that Heli, Mary's father, adopts Joseph as it were his own son. And that has a very significant implication in all those details concerning Jesus and the birth of Jesus and the lineage and so on. We'll look some other time. So this final section now again on the plains of Moab. And these last chapters we see in chapter 28 and 29, the feasts of Israel are reviewed. And then we go through looking chapter 30 about the rules regarding a vow. There's a lesson on treasure and where our treasure should be in chapter 31. Chapter 32 we read of the tribe of Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh who chose to stay on the east side of the Jordan. They got something that was good, but it could have been better. A lot of Christians settle for the good and they don't strive for the, be- for the better. The Lord has promised so much and we should never get to a place in our Christian life where we think, well, that's it, I'm comfortable, I'll stay here. We should always strive to get close to the Lord, know his word better. Chapter 33 is incredible. We have 49 verses, a summary of these 40 years. Chapter 34, a dividing of the land, who's going to inherit what portion. Chapter 35 deals specifically with the inheritance of the Levites. So we're going to mention that just in closing now. And then chapter 6 just confirms the permanence of this inheritance. It was to be forever for the land. But regarding the Levites, we're told that they were to have these cities of refuge. If somebody had committed a crime, manslaughter as we would refer to it today, they could flee to a city of refuge so that the avenger of blood, the one that legitimately was allowed to go after them... If the one that had committed this situation, this crime or whatever, was in a city of refuge, they would be safe. There were three on the west of the Jordan, three on the east of the Jordan. It's incredible. You see, these cities were available in cases of manslaughter, not premeditated murder. They were secured, of course, if you were there against the avenger of blood, as long as you remained in the city. And this situation would last as long as the high priest was alive. When the high priest died, you were free to go and nobody could touch you. Now, was the crucifixion of Christ premeditated murder or manslaughter? 
Well, we may argue that it was premeditated, but Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Effectively, it was manslaughter. So we have this right to flee to a city of refuge. Of course, who is our refuge? Jesus Christ. How secure are we in Christ? Well, as secure as can possibly be, providing we abide in Christ. Who is our high priest? Jesus Christ. When did he die? When he died on the cross. To purchase our freedom. And now we are free. And the avenger of blood has no claim over us whatsoever. So the book of Numbers is a book of sanctification, being set apart from this world. God wants us to live in victory in the place that he's intended for us to live. For you, is it going to take 11 days to make that journey or 38 years? The real issue is this battle of the flesh, the past life. Our journeying or staying in the world, hankering after the things of Egypt, will cost us. Remember again, they decreased in number through that time. They went backwards as a nation numerically. J. Vernon McGee says, There was a great problem with the children of Israel. God had taken them out of Egypt in one night. But it took God 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And even now, after they've been tricked into idolatry through the advice of Balaam to the Midianites, they still bring the Midianite woman into their camp. That is the problem with worldliness. It is not wrong for us to be in the world. That's where God has placed us. The great issue is whether the world is in us in our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so complete, Lord, and it has every lesson that we need to learn to live and to walk this life as you would have us do. Oh, but Lord, we ask this morning for your grace to help us to do this. Lord, help us to live in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. Lord, help us to not look back not want the things of the past life, but Lord, to keep looking to the one who was put upon the tree, the only one who can save us for our sin. We ask these things in his name, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.